Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activist empowerment talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening and thank you so very much for joining us on this first weekend of November 2015. And uh, I hope that you have had a very productive week and that you have done something on your Uh, task or bucket list around black empowerment this week, which each one of us should have an end game, and the end game should have a plan, and it should be about empowering both our spirit and the world in which we live, all the way from how we view ourselves and perceive ourselves as global citizens, how we precept our lives spiritually as neighbors 
and as a community. I'm so glad that you could join us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Let me tell you what we are up to tonight. If you haven't checked us out on Facebook or you have not subscribed to our newsletter that is sent out each Friday in regard to what we're doing on this broadcast. Tonight we're talking about trusting black women and building sustainable respect in the context of reproductive justice as a human right and a responsibility and obligation of all of us in our community. Uh, The concept of reproductive justice began to take shape when members of a Women of Color delegation returned from the 1994 International Conference on Population and Development in Cairo, Egypt, and we're going to be talking about its meaning and its globalization of revolutionary acts within our community. This group devised a strategy to challenge the proposed health care reforms, and since that time it has become much, much more. And I have always referred to our guest tonight, Loretta J. Ross, as the mother of the voice of black reproductive and womanist empowerment in this country. We hope you'll join us in our discussion about um, the right to say yes and no, um, the turbulence within our own community about what reproductive justice means and what a womanist uh, agenda includes, looking at domestic and intimate partner violence and whose responsibility is it, looking at access to affordable and health care for women, for black women, looking at the history of exploitation and sexual abuse, and how far we have come, and accessibility to choose whatever we choose. Our guest, Loretta J. Ross, will be joining us, and we hope that you will join us in this discussion. She was a co-founder of the National Coordinator of the and the National Coordinator of the Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective from 2005 and 2012. It is a network which was founded in 1997 of women of color and we need to talk about what that term means and allied organizations that organized women in the reproductive justice movement and she was one of the creators of the term reproductive justice, and I think sometimes we don't give very much thought to what that means. She's an expert on women's issues, hate groups, racism and intolerance, human rights and violence against women. In our second hour, I hope that we might have some time to talk about uh, something that, you know, I try to keep everybody on, on point But uh, something happened uh, in Chicago this week where nine-year-old Tyshawn Lee was targeted because of his father's gang ties, lured into a south side alley on Monday afternoon and assassinated. We need to talk about this. 
uh, if our children are now being caught up in this way, something is wrong in the village. Something is wrong in the village. The other thing that uh, in our second hour that I want to try to engage you about is the police officer who allegedly raped 13 black women. And there is a huge gap in the media coverage about this incident. And it is, and, and then there is something very dastardly that has happened. An all-white jury has been selected in, in his trial against um, this Oklahoma City police officer. He's accused of sexually assaulting 13 black women, including sodomy. He's 28 years old. He faces 36 counts of rape, sexual battery that carry a possible sentence of life imprisonment. He was arrested in August two. 2014, after an investigation of one of the incidents that happened to one of our sisters in that city where he was stopped. He stopped her, uh, alleging that she was uh, driving while intoxicated and raped her in his squad car. That is an allegation. Uh, So we need to talk about... um, how how justice is meted out. But for right now, we thank you again. If you are listening on a smart device and you'd like to join us in our chat room, you can do so at www.blogtalkradio.com. I'm Janice Grant. I'm going to be driving this wagon tonight, and none of the wheels will fall off. We thank you again. Please uh, email someone or go to our Twitter, Janice. Um, at Janice OCG and retweet our announcement about this program. We thank all of you who support us all during the week to get the message out about what we're doing on this broadcast. And we're so very pleased to and honored to have our sister Loretta J. Ross, who first joined us on Our Common Ground in 1986. I checked the records today. It was 1986 that she first joined us in our discussion about uh, reproductive justice in this uh, in this country. And we hope that you will stay with us. And she'll be joining us right after this. I think it is a feminist, a radical feminist act to tell our own stories. I think one of the things that oppression does is silence us. It makes us... Uh, victims of oppression rather than survivors and and warriors against oppression. And so I see it as a political act to tell my story. And I want to, by doing so, model how others can tell their stories. And hopefully that if you decide to engage in this feminist project with me, like become a professional feminist like I've done, that you will be empowered and emboldened to tell your own story. And trust me, your story does not have to be trauma and drama. Uh, matter of fact, the stories without trauma and drama are just as precious. So mine is a quick and dirty one. Um, I did not plan on being a professional feminist. If I'd had 
any consciousness that I was going to be a feminist, I would not have gone to college and majored in chemistry and physics because there are easier ways to get out of college than those subjects. Uh, but when I was 11 years old, I was on a Girl Scout outing from which I was kidnapped and raped. And that is a terrible way to get, to get introduced to sex and sexuality. And I was deeply afraid of telling my mother because I thought it was my fault. And so she did not find out until three years later when I had to confess to her what had happened to me at 11 because at 14 a cousin committed incest against me and left me pregnant. He was 27, I was 14. He thought it was a good idea to have sex with me instead of babysitting me, which is what he was supposed to be doing. And so I ended up being pregnant at the age of 14. And because it was in the 1960s, I had no choice but whether to have that child because it was before the legalization of abortion, which didn't happen until 1973. And though I didn't have any choice on whether to have the child, I did have a choice on whether to keep the child once he was born. And I made the startling decision, because it surprised the hell out of me, to keep my child. And I hadn't really thought that through, because I didn't realize that I would spend the next 46 years tethered to my rapist, uh, which is what happened. But I am glad that I kept my son, because he turned out to be the only child I would ever have. A few years later, I was sterilized by a Dalcon Shield which was an IUD that was defective and sterilized hundreds of thousands of women across uh, the world. And so my entire reproductive career was like brief, <laughs> you know, rape, incest, baby, sterilization. And I was like, oh, fuck. You know, why me? Understanding reproductive justice in the light of human rights. Trusting black women. Building sustainable trust and relationships with respect. No exception. We are honored tonight to have joining with us Loretta J. Ross. She is the essential voice of reproductive rights and the revolutionary act of trusting women's voices in the black community. I'm Janice Graham. Stay tuned. I'll be listening for you. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, Janice Graham. And we're so pleased to have Loretta J. Ross, co-founder uh, and national coordinator from 2000 for, for many years of the Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive 
Justice Collective, if you've just joined us. It's a network that organizes women of color in the reproductive justice movement. In fact, Loretta, our guest tonight, Loretta Ross, is one of the creators of the term reproductive justice. Um, in 2004, I want to note that our guest served as national co-director of the March for Women's Lives in Washington, D.C., and it became the largest protest march in U.S. history with more than one million participants. She has nearly 40 years of social justice activism reaching also into being the founder and executive director of the National Center for Human Rights Education. Uh, and we are just so pleased. Make a note of this. She is the co-author of Undivided Rights, Women of Color, Organized for Reproductive Justice, and the author of The Color of Choice, Loretta J. Ross. It has just been too long, and I am so pleased to have you join us tonight. Thank you for having me on your show. I just um, think that one of the, the discussions that we don't have enough about is the universal obligation of both men and Hello? Hello? Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, for some reason it just blinked out momentarily. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so let's start talking about uh, your, your asking you to look back and talk about from the time that the, the term reproductive rights was coin, coined uh, to where we are now and what differences it has made in the lives of black women and in our community. Well, the term reproductive rights was actually coined in 1984 during the middle of President Reagan's administration. There was an international conference on population in Mexico City where President Reagan decided to send a delegation there to proclaim that the United States would not support global family planning efforts that included or even mentioned the word abortion. And that became known as the Mexico City policy. And so feminists who were there at that International Conference on Population were outraged because how can you even talk about the United States presuming to dictate to women around the world what they should do with their bodies. I mean, it was bad enough he couldn't even get American women to agree with him, but then he's going to go around and say, and we're going to use our imperialist power to make sure that no women around the world have access uh, to controlling their reproduction uh, if they have to use abortion, which, of course, has then morphed into opposition to birth control and all of that. But at that time, in 84, they weren't talking about their opposition to birth control the way they are now with the Hobby Lobby decision and, and continuing to take court, course, court uh, cases to the Supreme Court to show that they're opposed to birth control as well as abortion. So anyway, Seminist in 84 said, we want to talk about reproductive rights. 
that we want to talk about the right of women to control their bodies. And that's where that term came up. And it really was an argument for privacy that a woman's decision to have sex and decide to become a, a mother or not is a private decision that the government should stay out of. Well, a decade later, a group of us black women were in Chicago and the Clinton administration was trying to do health care reform. And for some reason, they decided that if they did not include or, or focus on reproductive health care in health care reform, that they could somehow slide this through Congress without significant Republican opposition. Well, we black women, there were 12 of us coming from all different organizations in Chicago, had a problem with that strategy because reproductive health care is the main reason women go to the doctor. <laughs> and you can't mm-hmm. talk about health care if you're not talking about reproductive health care. So why are you throwing us under the bus? And so we said that strategy doesn't work. And as black women, we also didn't only want to talk about abortion because we feel that you got to talk about housing and education and violence, gun violence, for example, and and the right to have the children that we want to have because we're subjected to all kinds of strategies of population control. So we came up with the term reproductive justice by splicing together the term reproductive rights and social justice so that we could talk about the full range of human rights to which we are entitled, the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, and, my God, the right to parent our children in safe and healthy ways, in safe and healthy neighborhoods. And this entire conversation we're having tonight is about how we're being denied the right to see our children survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, you know, one of the things that I have observed is that the whole issue of reproduction, there are two things I'm concerned about, Loretta, that mm-hmm. the, the whole issue has, uh, concept of reproductive rights has become so much more comprehensive on the issues that you just outlined, uh, violence in our community, uh, trauma, uh, that our children face and parents are un- have very little control over it. The new uh, mass incarceration of black women uh, in this country, the violence against women by 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 police and by others by others in the community, specifically intimate partner violence, domestic violence, and the and I, I like to say governmental violence, <laughs> where where black women are subjected to a kind of trauma and violence in seeking um, uh, solutions to to the problems that that they face. But let's talk about access uh, and choice relative to uh, reproductive. Um, issues in our community. Let's. I mean, one of the things that has been very disturbing over the last five years to me is this continued talk about and seeming confusion around access to uh, birth control, access to abortion, 
and access to um, actually reproductive health uh, counseling. And, and for some reason, I think that my observation, I have a sense that in our community, there is not a great deal of discourse or support around raising those issues and having the kind of intense activism around them. What's your thoughts? Well, I think that your observation should probably be a little gendered. Those black women do have these conversations because our plumbing makes sure we have these conversations. I mean, anytime you are a woman who's of a fertile age and your period is two weeks late, you're having that conversation. (laughs) You had planned on having that conversation. (laughs) Trust me, it's happening. The question is, why is it happening in a, is not happening in a more public way? Why is it not being a major conversation that we're having within our political organizations, in the black media, uh, in our uh, spaces where black men and black women are having these conversations together? That's the real question, because Mm -hmm. every mother, every daughter, every woman who's ever had a period has had that conversation. Trust Mm -hmm. me, Mm -hmm. it does happen. Because it's a a fact of life that if you want to control your life, if you want to decide to go to school or to get a job or to take care of the children you you have to have or you want to have, you're going to have conversations about birth control, about abortion, about sex, about sexuality. What I think is happening, though, is that there's a politics of respectability, or they call it respectability politics, that's trying Mm -hmm. to hide those very necessary conversations. It's just somehow we're less moral creatures if we talk about biology and life. Somehow not talking about it makes some people think that it's going to go away or not be an issue. And, of course, that's kind of like the ostrich with the head in the sand kind of approach to life, but... Uh, That's what some people do. At the same time, I'm not sure that people understand the importance of having this conversation because, of course, there are those who are opposed to women exerting this kind of control over their bodies and deciding if and when they're going to have a baby who call abortion and birth control genocide. They think that we're committing uh, self-emulation if we decide to... uh, not have a baby at the wrong time in our lives or have the baby of a rapist or those kinds of things. And that's one other thing I want to say, because I actually entered doing social justice work, working at a rape crisis center, trying to fathom what had happened to me. And I know that more than 90% of the violence that black women experience is at the hands of black men. One of the things I remark on is that it's remarkable that I've stayed a heterosexual woman still loving black men with all the stuff that's happened to me because mm-hmm. I actually mm-hmm. wonder how can I continue to be so enraptured with that which has caused me so much pain. But at mm-hmm. the same time, I've been very lucky, very blessed to have had some quality black men in my life, including my father, my five brothers, I mean, and then that I've been in long-term relationships with who've shown me that not all black men are the kind that brutalize 
So I had some bad experiences, but they aren't the totality of my experiences. But I entered this movement as an anti-rape activist, kind of like uh, uh, Rosa Parks did, because she actually was an anti-rape activist before she sat down on the bus. And a lot of people don't know that until the sister wrote that book. uh, I think it's called The Dark End of the Street. We need to read about the early history of Rosa Parks and her work to end the rape of black women. But anyway, one of the things we used to get told back in the 70s and 80s when we were fighting uh, violence against women in the African-American community was that somehow we were betraying the race, that we were airing our dirty laundry, that we shouldn't be telling the white man what's going on in the black community. And I just had to look at all of these people who were saying that, because it wasn't just men, or sometimes it was women, and saying, excuse me, but no liberation army is ever going to succeed if half the warriors are abusing the other half. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what kind well, of revolution it, you anticipate, but that ain't going to work. <laughs> well, it is certainly a part a part of the needed discussion that gets skirt gets skirt all the time. We go around it, we go under it, we go over it, we deny it, but it is a discussion that has to happen. Oh, absolutely. And I like to uh, appreciate the fact that I have seen, even beginning in the 70s, many black men stand up and say, no, this shall not define me and my manhood either, that I am going to work to end violence against women. One of the most important groups I worked with uh, was a group in Morton Reformatory, which was the prison outside of Washington, D.C., where a black man named William Fuller started a group called Prisoners Against Rape. He was in jail for having raped and murdered a black woman, and while he was incarcerated, he decided that Well, the letter he wrote, he said, outside I raped women, inside I'm raping men. I would like to not be a rapist anymore. And that's what he used to start Prisoners Against Rape. And Mm -hmm. so I've been fortunate to see a lot of people stand up to end violence against women, to end the oppression of black women. And that's Mm -hmm. why we even came up with this phrase, trust black women. We know what we need to do to take care of ourselves and our family, and we're tired of not only getting disrespected by the white media and by police officers who think they can toss us around a classroom or or shoot us because we're not sufficiently respectful like Sandra Bland got mysteriously murdered in that Texas jail. We're tired of being disrespected, that Mm -hmm. we are demanding that you trust black women. And that doesn't mean that there aren't black women who won't do things that are absolutely wrong and and, and should be criticized. But, I mean, being a human being is having the human right to be stupid, too. But we also have the human right to be respected and to be honored for the difficult choices we sometimes have to make to survive in a white supremacist society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me ask you, Loretta, Um, In the years that I have been doing this work, this broadcasting work, one of the things that um, I perceive is that we are not having discussions with the men in our families, the men in our communities, about what it means to trust our voice and to respect our choices as women uh, what it what support looks like 
um and um and 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 you know I have a number of uh, many friends men male friends who label themselves as black male feminists and how we establish or create an infrastructure and an environment in which men can begin to raise their voices against this what I call a whole new rape culture. The other thing is, and and you and I talked last. I I, I do recall the conversation. I can't recall what I did this morning, but I can recall what I was doing in 1986. (laughs) And, and, And you and I were talking at the time that there was a movement to try to 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 wrangle in the kind of language and messages that were coming from rap music um you know because uh, I, I I I think right along. I don't that think that time, was my my campaign. I think that See the Lord's Tucker was having that yeah, campaign it was at during, the time. I know it wasn't your campaign, but it was during the time that uh, our ancestor See the Lord's Tucker was trying to organize because she had been on the air with me as well, uh, trying to organize some sensible plan around how we rein this stuff in. Because I was one of the people who was targeted by two live crew. Uh, I mean, in a very vicious and a very violent way, where you know my life had been threatened. Blah blah blah. But uh, how do we do that? How do we set that up so that men are? You know, I was thinking to myself just today about the issue of um, this police officer in Oklahoma City and saying I was thinking to myself and, and talking to to police officers and saying everyone is guilty until somebody decides that they are going to speak out against it. So I'm just going to say everybody's guilty, you agree about it, you have no problems with it unless you speak. How do we do that, Loretta? Well, first of all, let me just say it. I'm not sure if I want to share this whole conversation on men and what they do, but that's that's a whole other thing because I really do think that we need to, to, to have men who understand how Supporting sexism supports white supremacy. Be part of this conversation. Yeah. Uh, frankly, I don't have any opinion about hip hop music or rap music. My hips ain't hopped in fifteen, twenty years, so I I find it incomprehensible. I don't offer an opinion because I, my mother felt the same way about Motown in the sixties that I probably feel about hip-hop and rap now. So so I I understand that that's a very age-specific understanding there that I'm not qualified to speak on. At Uh the same time, though, I do believe that there needs to be, just like there's a movement for women uh, around reproductive justice, there needs to be a men's movement around reproductive justice. because That's what I'm talking about. When we've got 20 million black men who have been incarcerated during their most fertile reproductive years, 
that's a reproductive injury against the black community. And and we need to make sure that we see the the way this empire operates because every empire needs bodies, but it determines which bodies they're going to employ and treasure and which bodies they're going to see as disposable and either only suitable for putting in these endless wars in the military or putting inside of the uh, prison industrial complex. And so I am disappointed that I don't see more men talking about reproductive injustices they're experiencing as a fate, as a as a consequence of the prison industrial complex separation from kids, uh, the denied the right to be a parent, denied the right to even provide for their children once they're released from incarceration because of the stigma that is attached to having been incarcerated. All of these things are conversations not only women need to have. The entire black community needs to have that. But that's the beauty of the reproductive justice framework is that it enfolds all these things like housing, incorporation, gentrification, jobs, you know, environment, all of these things in conversations talking about our right to have not only the children that we, we want to have, but these children should be loved and treasured and raised to be healthy and thriving. This is a conversation not only women should have. Mhm. Well, you you certainly have have been one of the pioneers to to create this new paradigm of re, about reproductive justice and been able to uh integrate reproductive rights and social justice together. Um but I, and I I believe that we have to start somewhere and and I sense I I have a 22-year-old granddaughter um and I have had discussions with her about the issue of oppression against women in the in the in the in the sense that what intimate partner violence means in that in in terms of uh, how you begin to 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 filter through what you see, you know, what you hear, and I get the sense that that group of the, at that age group that these are women who have young women who have not had a real opportunity to reflect on who they are as women and what the what access and choice and, you know, I, I think that this young group of, you know, this, this generation, that they don't give them very much thought to abortion or access to abortion until there's a problem. I don't think that they give uh, a lot of thought to how you access the best health care for your, for your reproductive productive life uh, until there is a problem. How how can we in our community begin? I I guess what what we're talking about is grooming the next generation of the Loretta Ross activism and and, and, and a, a conscious black women's movement with this generation. 
Well, first of all, let's not blame it on a generational thing. The, okay. The incest that happened to me also happened to my mother. Mm-hmm. Happened to me also took place in the next generation among my nieces. So I'm representing a very Christian family who found itself incapable of talking about sex and sexuality at the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, and so it goes on and on and on. And when I raised it with my brothers who did not commit incest, they had no words, no way to even hold the brothers accountable who did. I mean, it is not an easy conversation to have. I mean, you know, that's the worst thing you can say over Thanksgiving dinner. Hey, I want to talk about you messing with your daughter. I mean, this mm-hmm. is not yeah. an easy conversation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we're learning how to have these conversations. And so I don't want to this the current generation for saying they're doing worse than we did or we did worse than my mother's generation did. We have yet to figure out how to have these difficult conversations. But it starts by breaking the conspiracy of silence. I was so yes. glad you started this show with me telling my story. Even though other people may not feel empowered to tell their stories, I have broken a lot of people's uh, silences by sharing my story so that they can say, okay, maybe I can lift my voice and say what happened to me. But also, I really treasure the stories of women who got through childhood without being abused. Because mm-hmm. I would like to know how that happened. I would mm-hmm. like to know what we can do for our daughters and our sons to make sure that that continues to be the model we promote, not the mm-hmm. one that I endured. And That's so, an interesting but, perspective about it, um, how you use people who have not been victims to to actualize, visualize victimology in this area. That's that's a very interesting way of of thinking about it. I had never thought about that. For instance, I growing up, I never had um, a situation. Where, um, I, I was never molested. I was never a, a victim of attempted rape or rape. Um, incest or anything sexual assault in 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 my life, and so uh, people like me could be very helpful in 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 trying to evolve some theories and ideas. I I, I think that there was a molester in our family, and um, I wasn't one of his victims. And I think it was because I've always had been perceived as having a big mouth. So it goes back to that silence thing. Well, I don't know. I had a big mouth, too, and it didn't protect me. Oh, I (laughs) I see. Okay. (laughs) So maybe that was... But but there there were also other factors. There may have been Mm -hmm. more consciousness in your family, a higher degree of protection afforded you that may have been largely invisible to you as a child. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it may, you know, the person may have felt accountable, more accountable, more fearful. Uh, my my abuser, the guy who incested me, ended up going to jail as a pedophile. But let me tell you about the reality of that. Because, as I said, I chose to parent his son. My son, up until this man's death, had trouble accepting that his father was a pedophile. 
He wanted to believe the best of his dad. He did not want to believe that his dad what did what he did, even though he was delivering proof that he did. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. And so I cannot overstate how complicated this stuff is to have these conversations. But I can I can state how deadly it is not to have the not conversations. To have yes. Yes. I think I mean, that is I'm, the, I'm one the of those people who do to ourselves. I'm I'm one of those people who thinks it's quite respectable to have a conversation uh at Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter dinner at the dinner table because you have all the children there to understand what this stuff is all about and people my my family sometimes just gets horrified and say can we not talk about that at at Thanksgiving dinner uh but I think it does set up an environment where children know that they have at least one person uh, to whom they can take refuge uh, if if there's some something going on, but but here's 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 my thought, Loretta, about this: that as our children become so desensitized to violence, I mean, um, we ask our children in our family to watch the news at least once daily, and they see all this stuff. And I think that in many ways our children in our community have come to think that this is the way, you know, kind of casually, this is the way life is. Are you you getting that sense? Well, I don't know if we have more violence or we have more visible violence. Um, Because obviously... Just think of the situation that my great grandmother endured as as the you know during the that post civil war period and and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and and you know literally having to walk down the street and avoid avert your eyes before you you made eye contact with a white person I mean I'm not quite sure again that I can give a lot of weight to cross-generation comparisons of violence or what each generation Mm -hmm. has to endure. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because I think each generation gets to to define the struggle on the terms they're dealt with. And and so I'm not saying there's more violence than there's less violence. I know that they are offered the benefit of what we've gone through. Now we have words to describe what happened to me. But back in the 1960s, when I was being incested and suffering childhood sexual abuse, we didn't even have a term for describing what I was going through. Mm -hmm. And we certainly didn't have a recognition in the African-American community that this is wrong and should be stopped. Mm -hmm. And so we have made progress. To what extent have our organizations contributed to... Uh, the limitations and impediment, the, the, the limitations of solutions to this for women in our community. You know, uh, we're not talking in our churches, for instance, about the uh, rape. Uh, we're not talking about sexual assault. We're not talking about incest. What I mean, to what extent does institutional silence contribute? Well, I think that, again, maybe I'm just too nuanced for words, but I think that even the black church has a left and a right and a center. The right-wing churches are anti-sex. 
So they're not going to talk about sex and sexuality or HIV AIDS or, you know, queer rights or transgender rights. They're not going to talk about any of those things. The center is trying to just be silent and kind of hold on to his disappearing membership because they're wondering if the prosperity preachers are going to take them all away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and, you're and right. And you got the left. The progressives who are talking about these issues, who should uh-huh. be uh, uh, appreciated and propped up for talking about these issues. And so even the black church should be parsed out saying, who is doing it right? Who is doing it well? Who should I support versus who should I offer a critique of? And not just paint with a broad brush all the people of faith, because I found wonderfully supportive people of faith, uh, the, the first offices of the D.C. Red Crisis Center where I work were in All Souls Church, the same mm-hmm. church where Dr. King spoke. <laughs> so I, I know there are churches that do the right thing, uh, mm-hmm. but there are also churches that do a lot of harm. And so I don't want to assume that all churches do harm. Yes, yes, absolutely. What What about social service organizations? Right, the links well, and the deltas and the end of well, I never pledged, so I'm not sure if I know much about the the, the Greeks. Uh, I went to college in the 70s when we were busily proclaiming we were Africans. We were not Greeks. <laughs> uh-huh. That's when I became a, a political activist and read the autobiography of Malcolm X and The Black Woman by Tony Cage. So. I was not into participating in Greek culture at the uh-huh. time. I but was I mean trying today. to do the revolution. But uh-huh. I, I say that as a disclaimer. I, again, see some Greek organizations doing great work. I've enjoyed a great relationship with the Deltas and the AKAs over the years who worked on teen pregnancy, sexuality, a whole lot of other issues. And, and Dorothy Hyde, who was both a Delta and, I believe, you know, heading, of course, the National Council of Negro Women, was one of the first women in 1973 when Roe v. Wade was first decided she issued a statement in support of it on behalf of black women. Mm-hmm. And so and so again, we have to be accurate in our descriptions of these organizations. Now the NAACP, they had never actually well the recent NAACP because the old NAACP actually supported Adam Clayton Powell Jr. in calling for birth control clinics to be placed in New York neighborhoods back in the 1920s and the 1930s because black women were being discriminated against when they went to the white birth control clinics and so they asked Margaret Sanger to place birth control clinics in black neighborhoods in Harlem uh, uh so that black women would have access. But then the, the the NAACP was silent for a number of years till it got to the prosecute, persecution and prosecution of black doctors who were deliver who were doing abortion mm-hmm. services even one, before abortion one, was Yeah. Yeah, one particular case here in Boston uh of a friend uh who was a black O B G Y N who performed abortions? Who uh, was, was that actually, Kenneth Edlund? Yes, Kenneth Edlund. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a particular uh, case where I saw the black community fractured in in terms of support of him and the and the work that he was doing, and the denial 
a back alley and crazy kinds of uh, um, abortion services that were that was the alternative. Exactly, because black women in Puerto Rican women were the number one groups of women who were dying from illegal abortions. And so many black physicians felt that it was their duty, kind of like Willie Parker today, to save women's lives. And this is what is what was happening. But I need to call out the uh, call on the modern NAACP because under the leadership of the late Julian Bond, they, he led the, the modern NAACP in the 1980s and the 1990s to standing up for uh, abortion rights and for black women again. And that was very important because when they brought those billboards down to Atlanta in 2010 saying, you know, the most dangerous place for an African-American child is in the womb, and they were trying to shame black women out of our reproductive choices. I know you heard about that controversy. Yes, uh-huh. and they're still and doing anyway, that. Oh, yeah, well, you know, they, 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 they have not learned a new song and dance in a long time. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, the local Georgia NAACP actually supported the billboards. And we were like, what the heck, you know? And so we had to call on the national NAACP to rein the brother in. Because he had not checked with the women within his Georgia chapter who were like, how Mm -hmm. dare you end up supporting a campaign that's trying to embarrass Mm -hmm. black women behind your whatever you think you're doing with your male, you know, patriarchy stuff. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. uh, the organizations, the black organizations, I offered a measured evaluation of what they do because I look at them historically over time. I know that they have shifted and changed over time. And there's generally a relationship to the power of women's voices within those organizations that determine how they come down on reproductive politics in black women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've got just a few minutes before we have to go into a top-of-the-hour break, Loretta, and one of the things for those of you who are joining us, just joining us, we're talking about trusting the voice of black women and building sustainable respect on the issues of reproductive um, justice, accessibility, and um, affordable, uh, competent health care for women, a protection against intimate partner and other forms of violence, uh, especially around rape and sexual assault. Um, Loretta, let me ask you, and for those of you who would like to join us in this discussion, our number is 347-838-9852. I can't forget to give you a number. The number is 347-838-9852 if you'd like to join us in this discussion. Um, can you, I, I know this, this, this integration, this, how you have brought together the issue of social justice and reproductive justice, can you talk to us a bit about that concept so that people have a good grasp around what is, when we're talking about reproductive justice, what we're talking about? Well, reproductive justice basically says that every time a human being is deciding whether or not they're ready to become a parent, there's a lot of other issues to be considered, whether or not you have a job, 
health care, whether you're in the, in the middle of a violent relationship, whether or not you can afford to stay in school. All of those are issues that must be considered long before you even get to the decision of whether or not to keep an unplanned pregnancy or not. And so if someone finds themselves pregnant, they're going to figure out how to address all those other issues. And if the answers to all those other issues aren't the ones that they can live with, they're probably not going to continue the pregnancy. But Mm -hmm. the worst thing in the world is for a woman to feel compelled to have an abortion for a wanted pregnancy, but because she's afraid she may get beaten by her partner or she may be forced out of school or she may lose her job because her job doesn't provide any benefits, any health care, any sick time off. I mean, these are the kinds of real life experiences that people have. So people who are frozen in that abortion debate to have or to not have the kid, they're missing the boat. Because Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. decision-making is way upstream of that. You know, do I have a good job? Do I have health care? Will I get beaten? Can I stay in school? You know, what will my other children do? I mean, these are the kinds of real live discussions that people have when deciding uh, not to continue a pregnancy or to become a parent, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what reproductive justice calls attention to. But I should also add, it's not just an individual thing, because we who are reproductive justice activists also call a critique on this neoliberal system that we have, where we are seeing the disappearing of jobs that even make it possible to sustain and raise our families so that the fat cats on Wall Street are making all the money and the rest of us are being made poorer and poorer. So we critique economics as well as reproductive politics. I, I hear you. I, I hear you on on that one. And one of the things that has been very troublesome uh, to me is that I, I find listening to people who call the show that we're not connecting the dots uh, to all of that. For instance, we can talk about um, the uh, incarceration of women, but we're not talking about the rape and sexual abuse of women while serving prison time. We're not talking about the support services necessary to be successful when women come out of prison to protect them from further violence, further sexual violence, further uh, situations where they don't have any choices about other people controlling both their bodies and their lives. It's um, Those are the kinds of dots that uh, I think that we have to begin, become conscious about and to become knowledgeable about? Well, the thing you need to understand about women who are incarcerated is that there's a real intersection between sexual violence and the incarceration. Like 45% of the girls in the juvenile justice system had five or more childhood experiences, including sexual abuse. I mean, Uh before they get there. Yes. Before they even mm-hmm. get there, all right? Yeah. You know, 84% experience family violence, even before they get there. And so talking about what happens to them and why they're there is really, again, 
failing to go upstream because when a vast majority of the girls, you know, a, you know, 76% of the girls arrested are, are, are girls incarcerated are arrested for prostitution, but many of them have been kicked out of their homes after they've been sexually abused. I mean, you have to intersect all of these issues to make sense of what's going on because our children are not crazy. They're not stupid. They are not morally deficient. They are victims trying to survive as best they can in a society that is failing to give them what every child deserves, which is a place to be healthy and to thrive. Absolutely. Our guest tonight, Loretta J. Ross, and we are just so honored to have her with us. When we come back, we're going to be talking about how we build sustainable respect so that there is a comprehensive approach, a comprehensive embracing of supporting women who struggle for reproductive justice. This is Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and we'll be right back. I'm really excited for the opportunity to talk about the totality of black lives. And so not just about police brutality, but about unemployment, about the lack of education, about the increase in suspensions, particularly amongst black girls. I'm excited also to talk about incarceration in this country and how we can cut mass incarceration so that we don't have millions of people behind cages, but instead that we realign folks with their families to better our communities once and for all. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals. The United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. I Declare Show is where we deal with the difficult, real, raw. Right now. If it's real raw right now, talk media. Come on, baby, say it with me. It can only be the I Declare Show. Talk soon. Hi, my friend and colleague on Blog Talk Radio. Every Tuesday night at 9 p.m., the I Declare Show with India Declare. Are you breathing oxygen in? Are you raising the energy up? Or are you bringing the energy down? There's no middle ground. It's your real, raw, and right now talk radio. I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m., Blog Talk Radio. I Declare It. Dealing with the difficult, real raw right now. The I Declare Show, baby. 
and he touched my baby. And I asked him, I said, Carl, what are you doing? And he told me to shut to shut my fat ass up, and it was good for her. And what did you do then? I shut my fat ass up, and I don't want you to sit there and judge me this way. You shut up and you let him abuse your daughter. I did not want him to abuse my daughter. I did not but want him to hurt her. Him I did not want her. him to do nothing to her. I wanted him to make love to me. That was my man. That was my fucking man. That was my man, and he wanted my daughter. And that's why I hated her, because my man, who was supposed to be loving me, who was supposed to be making love to me, was fucking my baby, and she made him leave. She made him go away. So whose fault was it then? this bitch's fault, because she let my man have her, and she didn't say nothing, she didn't scream, she didn't do nothing. So those things that she told you did to her, who, who, who else was going to love me? Hmm? Since you got your degree, and you know every fucking thing, who was going to love me? Who, who was going to make me feel good? Who was going to touch me and make me feel good late at night? And she made him go away. So, when you sit there and you write them fucking notes on your pad about who you think I am and why I did it and all of that, because I didn't have nobody. And now back to Our Common Ground. Thank you very much for being with us here tonight as we have a discussion with Loretta J. Ross, the co-founder and the national coordinator of the Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective from 2005 to 2012. We're talking about the issue of trusting black women and building sustainable uh, respect. Loretta, one of the things that I want to talk about in this segment is the the whole idea that if reproductive justice is around the issue of oppression of black women, which has its repercussions for black families and black communities, what are we doing about the issue of mental health services access and its competency in dealing with the trauma of sexual assault, rape, and violence trauma in our community. Well, first of all, let's start with some statistics. 25% of young black girls before the age of 18 will suffer childhood sexual abuse. That's 25%. The vast majority of those children will get no mental health services at all in order to help them cope with how they couldn't even get out of childhood without getting abused. And so then the trauma ends up 
cycling itself all over again because women who don't get that kind of help don't even know how to raise a child to keep their daughter safe. And I heard that little segment that you played where the mother blamed the daughter because her the guy who was raping her daughter left the family. And I'm like, excuse me, but that is what happens when you don't get a healthy intervention to help people deal from childhood sexual trauma. So they end up self-medicating, using drugs or alcohol. A lot of them end up in sex work uh, because they often leave their homes because they can't even deal with telling their parents about what's going on. And that's assuming the parents would have believed them in the first place and wouldn't have punished them because quite often the parents punish the children for the sexual abuse, not the abuser for the sexual abuse, particularly if they're economically or emotionally dependent on that abuser. And so, and then there's such a deep stigma in the African-American community about seeking out mental health, uh, mental health help, uh, which we have to, to also question. I know that my life was saved by seeing a therapist because I had gotten badly addicted to drugs back in my 20s and because I was self-medicating. And, and finally, I had to take my own advice. I was telling everyone who came to the rape crisis center to go see a therapist, but I hadn't gone seen one myself. And mm-hmm. finally, I had to take my own advice. And, you know, after being in therapy for a couple of years, you know, I became clean and I've been clean since 1982. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and for people who are listening, it's that. not just it's not just drugs. Um, okay, as absolutely. a victim, as a victim of institutionalized racism and dis- discrimination, when I was in business school, my drug of choice was a whole bag of Oreos and a <laughs> quart of milk every night. <laughs> We have to look at um, how 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 women have to find ways in which to cope. Because I really was ashamed that I was a victim of racism. I was ashamed about it. I I, I didn't talk about it for for many years until I got the hell on out of there. Exactly. And I'm not totally cured because I don't want to describe it as like, you know, you go to therapy and you get cured because, hell, I've got diabetes and I'm dealing with morbid obesity now because now I'm self-medicating with food. (laughs) But still, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a a much better alternative than the things I was doing back in my 20s. And Uh so I'm of the opinion that mental health because of not only the sexual oppression, but because of racism and the things that we go through. Because once I got back, I should have told this story. Once I had my son while I was in high school, when I returned back to my predominantly white high school, they didn't want to readmit me to school because I'd had a baby. And so I had to sue my school system for the right to return to school, which they were not doing to all the white girls that went to my school. They were only visiting this punishment on the black girls, kicking us out of school. So at age 14, I'm already dealing with institutional racism in the school around the right to return to school. Um, And it it does compound itself. Uh, But at the same time, 
one thing I've learned, and maybe I'm just speaking as an elder, is that you don't have a choice about whether oppression visits your life, but you do have a choice about how you respond to it. And if you Absolutely. seek out that help, and if you get, if you surround yourself with people who are there for you, then you can figure out better ways to respond to these oppressive conditions. Now, you're. It's a very wise, you know, I always say to people that I'll take um, a year of therapy over a a Prada bag any day. (laughs) Well, you'd have to explain to me who who is Prada and why would I care about his bag? (laughs) I mean, we spend spend our money in, in very strange ways, but we have this, this, myth about seeking mental health services, seeking services uh, on the issues for which we choose to be silent about. What's your counsel to to women and men in our community? You know, for instance, um, I often think about the men in the lives of women who have been raped and the kind of support that they need in order to be supportive and also to handle their own trauma. I don't think people actually think about that very much. You know, I think about fathers whose daughters have been raped, uh, who have been violently uh, sexually assaulted. I think about uh, parents of of, peop- of of Trayvon Martin and the wives and daughters of Eric Gardner and 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 the mother of Sandra Bland and sisters who have had to somehow cope with this just this just raw uh experience but then we have this myth about seeking mental health services well, I know that if I had a pain in my chest, I'm going to run to a cardiologist. And if mm-hmm. I got a pain in my heart, I'm going to run to a therapist. <laughs> and I tend to see those two things as being very, very necessary for saving my life. But but also, I mean, as I've had such lived experiences, I know my father was 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 over the edge with what had happened to me because he felt that he had failed as a black man. He had not protected his baby girl. And, and he was, he was incoherent with rage. He would, I had never seen my father just lose it so badly. I mean, and not in a violent way, but he just, he just, I watched him visibly crumble as he, as he heard what had happened to me. And his first thing was to go out and try to find, you know, my, my, my rapist and, and want to kill him. And I don't want daddy to go to jail. So mm-hmm. we all have to mm-hmm. stop him from doing that. Um, but then at the same time, uh, after I had, I was sterilized uh, at a young age and I had a relationship with a guy after that. And, 
after all of what had happened to me, I did not know how to have a normal relationship, a normal consensual relationship with a guy. And I was lucky enough to meet a guy who was very patient with me, who who helped me understand this is what a good relationship looked like. And not only was he a good relationship for me, but he was an excellent relationship for my for my son. My son was five years old when, when, when he met him. And to this day, you know, 45 years later, they still have a relationship because mm-hmm. he was a good guy. Um, and, and he helped me see that everything that involves sex does not have to involve pain and trauma. Um, mm-hmm. But so, so and, I, and, and, and he did it without the benefit of having gone to a therapist or something. I found out once I got in relationship with him that he had some remarkably healthy mom and dad. I just enjoyed knowing his parents and how supportive and sane and, and, and healthy his parents were, which I, mm-hmm. you know, was just, just amazing for me. So, yes, yeah, sometimes we need to do it. Through mental health, actually, I think most of us need mental health help because racism is an injury to our soul and our psyches. Uh, At the same time, I think that there are people who are doing the parenting thing so well that they're sending beautiful people out here in the world for us to find and and be in relationships with. I mean, I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm just saying that they are free of the type of trauma that I endured. Mhm, mhm. Well, you know, one of the things that I I am so appreciative of a- activists like you is that you have held your foot to to the to the gas for many many years, uh, helping women define um, the path in their struggle and create their own destinies about women's sexual and reproductive justice. Um, While I say that, I continue to think that this whole issue of uh, the uh, black women's reproductive justice agenda has um, has to be forwarded uh, at the local level, and I, I, I'm in Boston, so there is a great deal of activism that goes on here around reproductive justice. But for people who are in communities where it is not going on, what's your counsel about how you begin uh, to look at um creating the infrastructure and implementing a vision of reproductive justice for a community? I think all of these conversations begin at kitchen tables. And Uh every community got a kitchen table where the elder women sit around and talk. I know we've got one in my family, and I'm just now getting old enough to to get the seat at the table. But uh, you're at the grown folks' table now. <laughs> yeah, I'm finally at the grown folks' table now that now that I'm in my mid sixties. I'm at the grown folks' table, but five years ago they kicked me out of the grown folks' table. So. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, so you have to be, you know, 65 and older to get at the grown folks' table at my family reunion. But (laughs) that's where we have these conversations. And we also have interesting conversations, too. Not only about these issues, i got to tell you this this story. At the last family reunion two years ago, I was at about half 
a dozen boys were running around with their pants to the ground. You know what I'm talking about, the saggy pants, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And so it kept bothering me, and I didn't quite know how to handle it because I just, I just get tired of looking at their underwear. But that's, you know, me. So finally I just told one of them, I said, honey, if you don't pull those pants up, I'm going to pull them down to see what you're packing. Next thing I knew, every boy in my family had his pants up. <laughs> you know, they suddenly realized that here's this crazy old auntie who maybe actually needs see what they're packing. I mean, that was not the most politically correct thing to say. Yeah. But it was a way of changing a behavior without humiliating them, without you know, without scolding, without yes, and yes. so you can use love, you can use humor, you can use a number of things, you know, within a family circle to to to, to create change. But it begins at the kitchen table because I was sitting at the kitchen table when it occurred to me to say that to that young man. I know. I, I just—I haven't seen any baggy pants at a family reunion since but, then. But you know, as you, as you get as you get older in your family, you become more bold and and more courageous about having those discussions. Like I have discussions about sexuality and my own sexual personal sexual life uh, and ideology with my granddaughter. Conversations that. Um, I probably was too immature to have when my own daughter was that age with my daughter. And it, it, it's really, really interesting. And we do get a little, uh, you know, I, I, I think probably in the next two years they'll be calling me the crazy grandmother because I am starting to talk to my grandson about um, um you know, how he's attracted to girls and what makes him attracted to girls, a, a girl, one girl as opposed to another girl, and who are his women um, role models. And, 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 you know, and I said to him a couple of weeks ago, and this is a really funny story, I said to him, uh, we were talking about Eldris, whatever the, the actor's name is, and my granddaughter was just carrying on about how how beautiful his body was and 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 so I said to my grandson who's 14 I said you know why she's carrying on about his body because he wears clothing that fits his body and you can really see what he's what it's all about and my grandson I thought he was going to pass out from from that conversation <laughs> Oh, yeah, they have no idea. Well, I know with my own son, my son came of his sexual age in the day of AIDS. And so whatever embarrassment or hesitation I thought I had in talking to him about sex and sexuality and appropriate behavior, I put that to the side because back in the early 80s, you know, AIDS equal death. I mean, and so I was not going to have my son be sexually active in a climate where he could die from just simply having sex with somebody. And so, oh, my God, I was the condom queen of the neighborhood. 
No, but that's what I wanted to, that that we have to have these discussions, and they have to be informed. They can't be, while um, I heard it through the grapevine kind of conversations, because these services are very important to us. Uh, I know here in Boston, um, you know, there are so many so few services for the so many that need reproductive uh, health services that we can't just dismiss people completely out of hand with a bunch of junk science research. Well, that's what kind of frustrates me. I mean, we've got real enemies out here who are openly parading their white supremacist credentials. A lot of them are elected politicians who don't care how many of our children they send to jail, who are destroying our public education system with these charter schools that are making sure that we don't have food, that we don't have jobs and stuff. And yet I am in many conversations with a lot of credulous people who like to believe that Margaret Sanger, who was a nurse in New York City, who watched a whole lot of women die because from unplanned, unintended pregnancies, and they were having too many pregnancies. So as a nurse, she thought that Americans should have the same options for birth control that European women should have. So she started importing birth control methods and talking about birth control because she thought women shouldn't die from constant unplanned pregnancies. Now, somehow that has morphed into a woman who was somehow planning to destroy the black community. Get over it and get a life and get some facts and stop reading those right-wing websites that tell you BS about Margaret Sanger while at the same time they're supporting people like Sarah Palin and Donald Trump. I mean, these this whole confusion just pisses me off. Now, yeah. Margaret Sanger was not perfect. I mean, she made her mistakes. She was, you know, as racist as most white people were racist at the time. So I'm not trying to absolve her for being a, a person of the earlier 20th century. But that was when we had presidents who were in the Ku Klux Klan. And I don't hear you talking about them. I mean, and so mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. really get impatient when modern-day people are so naive about white supremacy that they let the real people who don't wear sheets off the hook while while they chase a ghost from the past as if that's the gravest threat to the black community. Right, right. I, I, I absolutely agree. Um, you know, Margaret saying, isn't she dead Died in 1966. Okay. Let me just talk about Margaret Sanger at the same time. Okay, so so you 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 who want to attack her, you're going to put your knowledge and your reputation up above Martin Luther King, W. E. B. Du Bois, Mary Church Terrell, Mary McLeod Bethune, all people, all black icons who supported her. So somehow you're smarter than all four of those people I just named. Uh-huh. About what's going on around family planning and black people? Uh-huh. I don't buy that you have the credibility to even know what you're talking about. But and and then there's this whole notion how uh the system of white supremacy operates in on one hand, 
you want to demonize black women and black girls for teen pregnancy and for unwanted children, but on the other hand, you don't want to provide any services or any governmental assistance relative to birth control. Or you want to you want to even support them if they do have the kids. I mean, black women are damned if we do. If we don't have kids, we're accused of killing the race. If we do have the kids, we're accused of killing the economy. <laughs> what yes. are we supposed to do? <laughs> and then you end up with a whole lot of sexists and misogynists in our own community who are willing to dump on us too. But but doesn't that come down to, within our community, doesn't that come down to the level at which we articulate, define, and live in in relationships that are respectful? For instance, uh, what I'm getting at is if I decide that I want to wear and use an IUD for the next 15 years, that's my decision. If you don't have a if you don't have a uterus in which to insert an IUD, why do you care what I got in my in my in my uterus? Well, that's or, kind of what we try to say that makes that doesn't make sense to me. If you don't care, if you don't believe in abortion, don't have one. Absolutely. If you can't get pregnant, why is it even your business? I mean, I don't get this. You know, if I don't have a penis, I am not going to be telling someone else what to do with theirs except don't abuse somebody with it, okay? <laughs> I mean, these are the craziest conversations we're having, but I think it's all about trying to control the sex and sexuality of women, as if we don't have a human right to decide these things for ourselves trying to accuse black women of being too stupid to make our own reproductive health decisions, which I I can understand a white racist saying that. But when a brother says that to me, I want to slap him down. Uh-huh. <laughs> to just put uh-huh. him in his place like, like the elder I am and say, boy, get a life. <laughs> you know, because... Yeah. You're yeah. not making sense when you are echoing the white supremacist movement in your description of black women. But this doesn't that doesn't that go doesn't that go back to the whole issue, uh, as you pointed out, about control? And we see it especially in men who have a propensity to want to control the lives of the woman that he says he loves. And in those kind of relationships, we find we find both um, verbal and physical uh, assault and violence. We find A lot of impediment. emotional abuse. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, and so that that also takes me back to why to the whole concept of how universal reproductive justice is in our discourse, in our perceptions about social justice for all of us. I think it's fundamental because if you're not self-determining over your body, you're not self-determining over anything else in life. I mean, it's just fundamental. You know, I don't know how else to describe it. I can't make it yeah. any plainer than that. 
You know, Loretta, you would be a great person to write the um, female version of Between the World and Me, Tanishi uh, Coaches. <laughs> right, because he talks about writing skills. He's so good. Oh, my God. I, admit, oh, I, I just that, absolutely love him. Um, I, 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 I grew up as an activist with his, his, with his father. And oh, okay, everything, yeah. And, and everything that he writes, I tell you, this book, I'm on my fourth reading of this book because I think the way in which he talks about the ba- black male body is so important and the fears. Um, my 14-year-old grandson has just finished his first reading, and he told me yesterday that he was going to read it again because there were some things that he didn't quite get. But somebody needs to write the female version of that because we grew up with fears. I mean... But I think it's already been written, baby. I want to call your attention to Bell Hooks and her writings on black love. It's already been yes. written. Yeah. I'm sorry, Belle. Belle yeah, has written yeah. on black love. She has so many books on race and represent, representation and black love. She wrote those books. Pull them out. Belle Hooks. I think I think I, I, I will do that again. I, I think I absolutely will do that again. I do a, li- a lot of listening to discussions uh, on YouTube uh, with she and Audrey Lord and 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 um and and I th- I think you're absolutely right that it is she 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 did it first. I'm glad she you I'm, I'm glad you raised that. <laughs> she, Can I she, stop, stop stopping? Can I just interject something because you had mentioned it sure. on your introduction, and I don't want make sure we don't forget it. And that is where the term women of color came from. Mm-hmm. Can I can I give that history for a second? Sure. Take about a minute, please. Okay. Please do. In in nineteen seventy seven, there was this national women's conference in Houston, Texas, and at the time, uh, the the conference called us minority women, and a group of black women from Washington D.C. didn't like that term, so they went to Houston in order to present what they called the Black Women's Agenda that they wanted the conference to adopt. When they got to Houston, every other, quote, minority women wanted to be part of the black women's agenda. But obviously, if you let Native American, Mexican American, Latinas, Puerto Ricans, Asian Americans join the black women's agenda, it ain't no longer the black women's agenda. It was in Houston in 1977 that the group of women of color came up with the term women of color as an act of solidarity with each other, not a biological designation. You're born black, you're born Asian, you're born whatever you are but you choose to become a woman of color when you work with other oppressed groups fighting white supremacy. So that needs to be widely said and known. We self-named ourselves as women of color under the leadership of black women. Well, you know, I put that history on our event. I always post uh, a lot of different reading references and and discussions and, and material for each episode of this broadcast, and I did post that in our event. And for those of you who are listening, you can go to our Facebook page and find it, the full history, and it was 
written by our guest tonight, Loretta J. Ross. <laughs> well, actually, you know, and, and let me say, I'm repeating a story my elders told me because I was not at Houston, but but I I was in my twenties at the time, and they came back and told me what they had done, and these were women in their sixties, and and Coretta Scott King read the first statement that they issued using the term women of color from the stage. Mm-hmm. Mhm mhm I think I I think that is a very critical uh point of both history and ideological core of this reproductive justice movement. Uh I know I've been very remiss in giving out our number if you want to join this uh discussion with Loretta J Ross tonight 347-838-9852 is our call-in number and you are invited to uh, join in the discussion. Loretta, what is um, what is your future um, from here in your activism? Well, I'm always going to be an activist. One thing I've learned, unfortunately, is that you can't unlearn consciousness. <laughs> you just can't go back to the no. state. Stage where you didn't know what was going on in the world and pay attention to the news every day, and so. Uh, but I'm no longer running a nonprofit. I spent 45 years in the nonprofit industrial complex, and I just refuse to do that anymore. So I'm writing. I'm lecturing mm-hmm. and writing. I go around the country. I hit about 20 to 30 college campuses a year giving lectures, and then I'm in the process of writing several books. I'm writing a textbook with Ricky Solinger on teaching reproductive justice. That's coming out fairly soon, I mean, 2016. Uh, the press is reissuing Undivided Rights, the book I wrote with Marlene Freed and mm-hmm. Yael Silliman and Elena Gutierrez, Undivided Rights, Women of Color, Organizing for Reproductive Justice. That's getting reissued in 2016. And then I'm writing the history of African-American women in the abortion rights struggle called Black Abortion. And that, I hope, I can't put a date on when that's coming out. But that's kind of like my my heart. I've been working on that book for the better part of 20 to 25 years, which is why I know book, chapter, and verse on who Margaret Sanger was and what she said and what the black community has done, not only since slavery, but one of the things that people who are ignorant of history don't even know, that there were recipes for abortions uh, in the Egyptian uh, uh, papyrus. The Egyptians Mm -hmm. were teaching the Greeks and Romans about birth control and abortion. I mean, this is African knowledge that is so ancient. I mean, after the Civil War, the black birth rate was cut in half between 1965 and 1915, and that was long before Margaret Sanger even knew she was going to be campaigning for birth control. Black people Mm -hmm. have always had knowledges about how to control our fertility and always wanted to control our bodies, even during the enslavement. And so to deny this knowledge that we bought over from Africa, that we used to resist slavery, and to act like we only know this stuff because of some white woman really pisses me off. Yeah, yeah. It it takes it it, it takes it uh back to there as a matter of fact 
I had read, and I don't recall exactly what it is, but there is some procedure uh, that's used in uh, early early abortions now that actually was one of the um, African uh, medical inter- intercessions uh, for uh, birth. Um, it might be vacuum aspiration. I'm not a doctor, but I suspect uh-huh. it's vacuum aspiration. No, it's, it, basically. It, it, it has something to do with some kind of meta, um, um, herb mixture. Oh, that's herbs, put in, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's put into a yeah. sponge. Um, exactly. Which I found just so, um, so interesting, so very interesting. Um, so we can expect you to continue in in doing your in in doing your conferencing and those kinds of activities that you've always done on reproductive justice. Also, human rights, and I also I have a lecture that I'm doing now on appropriate whiteness because I'm really tired of white folks who need to be part of the movement to end white supremacy who are so racially awkward and so fragile. <laughs> Actually, I hear you. In, in, in embraced uh, doing a lot of work on appropriate whiteness with white folks who really need to be a part of this human rights movement. So I don't want to just be known for reproductive justice because I've done work against the Klan and for human rights and and now on appropriate whiteness as well. Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask you about um, try to get your insight into some um, uh, particular around, um, I've been, I mean, last week I came on the air and said, okay, every time I think it can't get worse, it does, and it had to do with the young young girl in the high school at, in in South Carolina, um, who was assaulted by a police officer that was employed to be security within the school. And the other is about, in general, our our law enforcement and court system that fails to protect women in issues having to do with sexual assault, rape, and uh, violence against women. Well, let's first of all, let's think about why do we have law enforcement in the first place? We have law enforcement in the first place starting in the 1700s as a way to protect property. Okay? It was not there to protect people. It was not there to protect slaves. It wasn't even there to protect white people. It was there to protect property. And if you keep that in mind, you really understand that law enforcement today is still about protecting property, which is why they were far more upset with the Burt drugstore in Baltimore than they were with Freddie Gray losing his life. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. these, these are the types of uh, rationales that we need to keep in mind. Now, interestingly enough, not only did that out-of-control 
school school security officer, a.k.a. cop, throw that black girl around. But did you hear about the two black cops who killed a white six-year-old in Louisiana who immediately got arrested? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, or even okay. A cop in, even a, uh, uh, in a school, um, and we talked about it last week on this program, a 14-year-old white girl who was uh, assaulted by a swim coach, he was immediately charged. Yeah, so apparently who gets held accountable depends on the race of the victim, much more so than the race of the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Mm, isn't that amazing? Yeah, and, and so isn't that our history? <laughs> Exactly. And so, first of all, we have created, we've turned our schools into prison prep programs. Mm -hmm. That's all they're doing. They are warehousing and containing our children. They're not educating them. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. Uh, But the callousness, and what really hurt my heart was the other black kids who thought it was okay for her to be brutalized that way. Mm-hmm. So that they felt in, they needed to rally against the firing of the of the okay. officer, right? And so the thing that's saddest about white supremacy for me in the 21st century is that they have always told lies about black people, but in the 21st century we believe the lies. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. really hard. Yeah. So much of yeah. us believe the lies. And so our resistance is being dwindled away. We can't mm-hmm. form solidarity against the slander of our race because we, some of us actually think it's in our interest uh, to do the, the Uncle Tom, the Aunt Jane, and Carson kind of step and fetch it dance. Yes. Um, and we're transmitting that along to our children. In mm-hmm. in some instances, I mean, not all kids. Most kids are conscious, and I'm very proud of them. But some of them are being brainwashed, and we saw that in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And and, and the I'm other not surprised is that, that it's South Carolina. <laughs> the other thing is that um, we didn't have enough discussion uh, about the kind of intervention that should have been put into place. Uh, at the school after the event with the children who had to witness it. I mean, um, if something like that had happened in a Brookline, Massachusetts school, which is predominantly white, um, any uh, in, in the high school there, uh, they would have brought in counselor, trauma counselors immediately for all of the children. The other is that nobody has talked about the the whole management of this student's presence in that school, given the kind of social um, crisis that she was going through around her family and around her illnesses. There has been no discussion about that. And the other and, and Loretta the and I want to even black black the black instructors who were there witnessing, they were not trained 
and it's not even that they're not trained. They're not allowed to give individual attention to students because they are they are being punished for not teaching to the test and treating all the students the same and not paying attention to their individual problems because they would get punished for even doing that. Abs- ab- you're 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 absolutely right. The other is the that the insistence um, that we have that has been absent in in answers relative to the Sandra Bland. Mer- I, I call it a murder. Murder, I right? Mean, yeah, I, I just. Um, I like them to take and, me to court for using the word murder because I actually think it was a murder. Give me a yeah, in court I, so I, you, can, it, you can prove that there's it was. There's no other <laughs> plausible explanation for 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 her being mm-hmm. dead. So you have to label it a homicide until you prove that it is not. But what well, is, the point what is, is she wouldn't have been in that situation if there hadn't been racial profiling and an injustice in the whole stop in the first place. So either it was you. a premeditated murder or it was the, her murder was the result of bad policing. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I'm not sure if we have not demanded enough from our government, uh, the Justice Department has been very quiet on um, the issue of Sandra Bland. Uh, the Justice Department has been very quiet on the call and challenge regarding uh, sexual assault in prisons in general. Um, um, I am a former member of the board of the Detention International, and I just don't see our government, our federal government, responding in any way to these in 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 a way which would be. Uh, I, I think that they are deliberately incompetent on these kinds of issues. Oh, absolutely! I mean, the government and the law is only going to be as good as we make them be. Uh, there, it is not the government. The government doesn't see its role to police itself. <laughs> it mm-hmm. does not see that. Uh, and and just because we have a a black attorney general and a black president, I mean, they only got those jobs because they were willing not to rock the boat. <laughs> so far, mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. so. Uh, uh, and and so and I've been in meetings with President Obama, and literally his message has been, "I agree with you. Now go make me do it." Mm-hmm. So and his thing, yeah. So his not so subtle signal is that you've got to create the political power to make me do what I what you want me to do, because I, yeah. in and of myself, don't have it by myself. Yeah, yeah. And he's absolutely yeah. right. Well, yeah, um, he 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 is Loretta Ross. It has been such a pleasure, and we are so honored to have had you here tonight to talk about um, the plethora of of issues having to do with social justice and and its connection to reproductive justice. And it just gives some common sense, kitchen table kind of conversation about these issues. Um, I will, and 
will always uh, support the work that you do. I have been calling you, I don't know if you saw it, but I have been calling you the mother of the voice of women of color and reproductive justice. I'm not justice that at all, but system. thank you. <laughs> I, I called you, I, you didn't see, I, I called you the chief of the of the black woment. <laughs> I, I, the woment. I made that up, and that and that's okay. <laughs> but thank you so very much. And you've got to come back again. Um, I do want to do a couple of uh, programs. This is a programming note on the issue of rape culture in our community and in this nation. I think that we have to understand that there are some things that are happening that has created uh, an environment which we have become desensitized uh, to the issue of rape and sexual assault uh, against both men and women. Well, have invitation will come. Thank you for having me on your show. Okay. Thank you so very much. And you have a good week, and thank you for the work that you have done for these 40 years on behalf uh, of women in this country. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're certainly going to have to have her back. I like common sense, kind of get-down-with-it discussions. We want to thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Um, On a programming note, we want to make sure that you are uh, joining us on all of our social platforms, and I'm going to review them with you tonight At Twitter, we're at JaniceOCG, hashtag TalkThatMatters, hashtag BlackTalkMatters. We do have our website at OurCommonGround.com. We're on Pinterest. We're on Tumblr. Uh, we we, We publish a weekly news review uh, every Friday called Scribbling Race on Common Ground, and we are at Scoop It. Our email address is ocginfo at ourcommonground.com. ocginfo at ourcommonground.com. And we'd like to ask you from time to time, you know, send us a, a note and tell us what you think about our programming. An update after Alpha of the Alpha Show at TruthWorks Network has now had his 12th great-grandchild, Jonathan Emanuel, who's an absolutely beautiful baby. Uh, Alpha is at home, and he's trying to get, I'm not going to say he's comfortable, he's trying to get comfortable. We we try to talk with him as much as we can <coughs> And you can hear me cough, and I'm still trying to figure out what to do with the rest of all the stuff that I've been going through um, with um, uh, health-wise. You know, during this time of year, when the when everything, when you have a three-year-old grandson who is always in your face and wanting to cuddle and watch movies and and hold your face and kiss you on your nose and all those kinds of things. You get all kinds of nasty germs, and I keep getting all these nasty, nasty germs. 
Next week we'll be here at Our Common Ground, and we hope that you'll join us as we continue this effort to help black America achieve itself. Um, We will be having our Kwanzaa special this year. We didn't have it last year, but we will be having it this year. Uh, We're looking forward to being with you on a number of issues, but one of the things we want to ask you is to develop uh, an end game. Make a Make a commitment to our community. Make a commitment to make it better. Thank you for being with us, and we'll see you next week at 10 p.m. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. If a dove's prayer preach, it's pious, pious.